Amen. Well, happy Mother's Day again. I know it's kind of weird to have a sermon on communication and conflict on Mother's Day, uh, but that's the way we're going to roll here. We are in week four of a marriage series, and that's what we've got this morning. And one of my greatest fears um, as a pastor, and really probably if you ever asked any public speaker at all, uh, one of my greatest fears has to do with this thing right here because, and that's connected to this, because what it does is it amplifies uh, everything. So right now it's amplifying my voice. That's a good thing. My fear involves if it's live and I walk in the bathroom. That's what I don't want to get amplified out to all of you. That would be terrifying, okay? It amplifies, it just amplifies. Good and bad, it amplifies. That's what it does. Marriage is very similar in that it amplifies everything. So the good things that you bring into marriage, they get amplified and oftentimes they improve. So love deepens, affections grow, um, friendship grows, all these good things, it, they, they, they get amplified. But also those things that you bring into marriage that are maybe a little bit raw, a little bit uh, painful, um, a little bit difficult, they get amplified as well. And they become a little more difficult, they become a little more raw, they become a little more painful. Because marriage just amplifies everything. And one of the most common places that you see kind of the negative side of things get amplified is as it relates to communication and conflict resolution. You bring that into marriage, you bring some bad habits, some bad techniques that we all have, we've all picked up, we've all seen them modeled for us, and we live them out, and then we compound it because we're sinners ourselves. We bring that into marriage, and a lot of times it just gets worse. Ed Wheat says this, he says, it's easy when dating to be lulled by soft lights and romance and to assume that you communicate well, but under the floodlight of marriage, any flaws or trouble spots in your communication system will quickly show up. Because you put two sinners in the same room, sparks are going to fly. That's what happens when two people get married, sinners in a room, sparks are going to fly. And so this morning, yes, is oriented towards marriage, right, toward married couples, but really it's got massive implications for all relationships. How, how do we communicate well? How do we resolve conflict? And then probably the single most important issue in marriages and really in any relationship how do we forgive well? What does that look like? And so that's the outline for this morning. Communication, conflict, forgiveness. And this is a safe place, all right? Working this out in community. That's what the church does. And being honest with some of us in here and myself included, sometimes our com communication and our conflict resolution for some of us in here, it's in the tank, and we talked about for all of us, as it comes to marriage, we all at least need a little bit of touch-up paint. But maybe this morning for some of us is a time to, to really prime over some bad habits, some bad ruts that we've gotten into because of our sinfulness. And that's what I hope to see this morning. In Christ, old dogs can, can learn new tricks. He makes all things new. And so hopefully this morning we might pick up on a few new things and let the hard work of allowing the Spirit to go to work in our lives, changing us, begin. 
And so communication, conflict, forgiveness, one sermon, no problem. We'll be here for an hour and a half. Let's go. I'm joking. I hope. Number one, if you're taking notes, communication is a two-way street. Communication is a two-way street. And I'm not just talking, you know, husbands and wives as a two-way street, that you both have to be in it, all right? That, that, that is a sense of it. But what I'm really getting at is that this two-way street of communication involves speaking and it involves listening. That's the two-way street I'm talking about. So we were created by God to have fellowship and have communion with Him vertically, but then also with humanity horizontally. And marriage should be the place where that is seen at its, and experienced at its deepest level. And when communication in marriage stops, withdrawal starts. And it can be devastating. I mean, without good communication... It is impossible for us to fulfill God's blueprint of marriage. Genesis 2.24, that we would leave our parents and, and cleave or hold fast to our spouse and that we would become one flesh. That there would no longer be two people, now there would be just one. It's impossible without good communication for that vision of truly being one person to, to happen. Wayne Mack puts it like this. He says, To a large extent, a married couple's experience of genuine oneness will be determined by the health of their communication system. Nothing except their union, communion, and communication with God in and through Jesus Christ is more important to the development of genuine oneness. And so we've got to learn how to drive on both sides of the streets, being open and honest and vulnerable on the one side in speaking and listening, not just with our ears, but also with our heart on the other side. And so let's talk about those two things. Let's go mutual openness and honesty first. I cannot really know my wife, and she cannot really know me unless we're open and honest with one another. It's not going to happen. And if we're not open and honest with one another, what we wind up doing is loving a phantom version that is not real of the other person. We don't truly love that person. We love the phantom it's kind of like the revelation of God, his Bible. We could not know God unless he revealed himself to us in his word. Now, we can look at nature, Romans 1. We can observe things about him in nature. But we cannot know of his grace and his mercy and his kindness towards us, his love towards us, the redemption he offers us in Christ without him giving us his word, without him revealing himself to us in his word. And it's similar with our spouses. We can observe things about our spouse. We can know some things about our spouse by looking at them and looking at how they relate to other people. But we can't truly know them unless they reveal themselves to us. Unless you open your mouth, unless you are honest, open, vulnerable. But how do you get to that place where you feel free to live in mutual honesty and openness? How, how do we get there? You get there by remembering and focusing on a couple of things. Number one, who you are in Christ. Who you are in Christ, that you are forgiven, that you are redeemed, that you are loved, that you are a new creation and you are being made new day by day by day and that you're not defined by your mistakes, by your past, by your sin. You're defined by Christ, His righteousness for yours. You give up your own trying to claim out and you've grabbed hold of Christ and you are His. You remember who you are in Christ. And then you remember the same thing about your spouse, who they are in Christ. 
that they are forgiven, that the King of glory died for them, that they are made in his image just like you are, and that if they are a believer, they've been adopted into his family, and they are seen as righteous, not because of their own actions, but because of Christ's actions for them. He lived a perfect life that they haven't. He died the death of condemnation that they deserve. And like a great big cosmic exclamation point, he rose again saying, it's done, it's accomplished. And so you remember who you are in Christ, you remember who your spouse is in Christ, and then you also remember the gift that they are to you from Christ. And so when you focus on those three things, who you are in Christ, who your spouse is in Christ, and the gift that they are to you from Christ, then you can begin to live in openness and honesty and vulnerability with your spouse. That's one side of the street. But the other side of the street, and it's even more important than, like on this side of the street, you're seeking to be understood. But even more important than that, on this side of the street, is seeking to understand. And learning to listen, not just with our ears, but with our heart. Hearing from where they're coming from. And so you both have to learn to listen that way. I mean, Mom always said, it's Mother's Day, Mom always said, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. You need to talk. You know, you need to listen twice as much as you should. My mom doesn't talk like this, but you need to, you know. You, you, you need, you, maybe you, you, need to, you need to listen twice as much as you talk. And she's right. Listening is one of the most basic skills that is absent in marriage and really in any relationship. And I'm at the top of the list on this. I am not good at this. You can ask Sarah. She literally has to tell me sometimes, listen with your face. All right? Listen with your face. She has to tell me that. And so let me just throw some active listening skills at you. This is just real practical. Today will probably be the most practical ser- sermon of these five. All right? As, you, as you're seeking, as you're listening, seek to understand first. Then be understood. Make your goal to understand them before you know, trying to ensure that you are understood. And give that full attention. Listen with your face. Turn the TV off. Put the iPhone down. Put the iPad down. Give your full attention. Don't interrupt. Don't interrupt. Communicate empathy as you're listening. Not fake empathy. Like truly enter into where that person is coming from. And ask questions, not sarcastic ones. Real questions. And when you're speaking on on the other side, be truthful. Don't exaggerate. Don't use words like always and never. All right, those words aren't helpful. They're not true, and they can hurt. Not just hurt, they they, they can kill. And then, I mean, you you know this 60% of communication is nonverbal. So what your posture is says something. Your facial expression says something. You know? So don't, don't sit with your arms crossed and don't sit with your arms flailing unless you're a preacher, then it's okay. <laughs> but just be mindful of these things. But the number one thing you should be concerned about communicating to your spouse is your love for them. 
And so find ways to show them and tell them. And doing that in a way that they feel is a huge deal. And so guys, this may come as a shock to you, but your wife probably does not feel loved the way you would feel loved. Right? Like a lot of times when I try to buy Sarah a present, I wind up buying something I would like. Not she. Not not something she would like. Now this year, I got it right for Mother's Day. I bought her a pedicure, something I would hate. All right? I worked hard for these calluses. I want to keep them. All right? She... She was so excited about that. I learned a little bit about that. So study your spouse. Get to know what they like. Find out what they're interested in. Find out what's important to them. And tell them you love them. Like those words, I love you, should be overused. You can't say that enough. It's impossible to say that enough. And so tell them, yeah, but also find ways to show them. All right, that's the formative side of communication. You listen, you seek to understand, then be understood. And you're vulnerable and you remember who you are in Christ, who your spouse is in Christ, and the gift that they are to you from Christ. All right, that's the formative side of communication. But there's also a corrective side of communication, and that's conflict. And so number two in your notes, write this down. Conflict is a given. Okay, conflict is a given. You will have conflict in your marriage and in all relationships, period. Actually, probably exclamation point. You're going to. And that's normal. You married a sinner. And you are one. So you see all of their faults and failures and sins. And they see and expose all yours as well. And then to top it off, we sinfully sometimes allow mere differences of opinions to become things that we war over, all right? And they become wars to be won instead of just a difference of opinion. Or, or we take a difference of opinion, I do this, as a personal rejection. You don't agree with me? You're, you're, re- you're rejecting me. That's the way I feel. And that's wrong. You just disagree. And that's Okay. And so conflict is going to happen. The, the question is, how are we going to deal with it? All right, that, that's key. How are we going to deal with it? And there are five predominant ways that people deal with conflict. One of the ways is winning. Just win the argument. It doesn't matter the cost. It doesn't matter the collateral damage. It doesn't matter the fallout. You just get what you want, bottom line. That's one way people deal with conflict. Another way is withdrawal. Run and hide, pretend it's not there, sweep it under the rug, but all that does is lead to an explosion later on. Third way people deal with conflict conflict is becoming a doormat. Just do anything at all to keep the peace, to keep the other person from being angry, even to the point of endorsing or allowing sin and harm. Compromise, a fourth way. And sometimes compromise has a place, but A lot of times what happens with compromise is you wind up compromising on on values and on what's right because you want peace. It kind of starts as a compromise and then swings over to becoming a doormat. But the fifth way, all right, is seeking resolution. It's seeking to resolve the conflict. And this is where both people are fighting hard 
Not against one another, but against themselves, against their sin. And they admit fault and they repent earnestly. And they're seeking to resolve the conflict biblically. Not, not, not compromise, but a biblical solution. And so this means you have got to fight fair. Because you're not trying to win. You're trying to resolve. Like Sarah and I have gotten to a place and we, we swing over. And I don't want to paint a, picture, a false picture here. We swing over into trying to win frequently because we're sinners. But when we're doing this right, one of us sometimes, you know, will hit below the belt and the other one will be like, hey, we're trying to resolve here. And they'll just let it roll off. All right. Because you're not trying to win. You're trying to, to resolve. And so you've got to fight fair. And somebody said, well, what are you talking about fighting fair? Well, you're not fighting fair if you're shutting down your listening. Slam the door, walk out and not listening. All right. And there's timing for things. Some people need a little time to cool off, think for a minute, be wise with that. But just shutting down and refusing to listen, all right, that's not fighting fair. Shutting down your response, you, you hear it, but I don't care, I'm just shutting, I'm not doing anything. That's not fighting fair. You're not fighting fair if you start stabbing one another. You know what will hurt because you know that, that person better than anybody else. So you know what will hurt. And so you bring up things you have not loved them uh, by, you know, you, you, I guess better to say, you have unlovingly kept a record of wrongs. You got your little checklist. And so now conflict happens. You want to win. So you pull that out and you start stabbing. You start hitting below the belt. You know old wounds. You know old scars. And you start really digging into those. That's not resolving. That's you trying to hurt, trying to maim, trying to beat them into submission and win. It's not becoming of a follower of Christ. But we do it. Or you start scolding. like You start scolding your spouse like a yard dog. If that's how you're not to fight, I and mean, if that's fighting unfairly, then how do we fight fair? Turn over to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one around you. This is page 984 in the black Bible that's around you. Cody read this a few minutes ago. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Page 984. Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony." And so the first step in conflict resolution is not better communication techniques, but self-examination and repentance. Because this is how we're to conflict. All right? We're to conflict like this. And so you focus on yourself, not on yourself and how you feel, you know, but on, on yourself on how you're living these out. Are you conflicting like this? Are you fighting like this? Because this passage, look at it, it's assuming that conflict's going to happen. 
That's why they're talking about bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving with one another. It's assuming conflict is going to happen. And so it's saying, hey, here's how you conflict. It's going to happen. Here's how you do it. Verse 12, you put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Right? You're seeking to understand. You're seeking to hear with your heart and not mentally prepare your next attack while that person's talking. You're seeking to hear them. And you fight fair by even in your disagreements being kind. You don't throw words. You don't call names. You don't attack. You don't attack the person's character. That's not working towards resolution. That's seeking to win. So we conflict with compassionate hearts, with kindness, with... What's that next word? Say it louder. Humility. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. Humility. Imagine if you fought with humility. Imagine how many degrees the, the, you know, that would de-escalate the, the heat of the fight. And imagine how you would really begin working then towards resolution. Because you're going to get nowhere if you are not willing to admit fault and look at yourself and your own faults. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. Meekness and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord is forgiving you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so basically, the way we fight fair, the way we fight biblically, is we fight with the gospel. All right? We seek to live out the gospel. Because the gospel is not just about saving souls. It also can save marriages. And so here's how you live out the gospel in the midst of your conflict. Number one, and I'm going to put these in first personal, you know, first person statements. I must realize that like Paul, I am the chief of all sinners. I must realize that I, like Paul, am the chief of all sinners. Listen to the words of 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. You don't have to turn there, just listen for a second. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, when Paul says that he is the chief of all sinners, is that qualitatively true? Is he the worst sinner to ever live? No. But that's how he saw himself. He focused on his own sinfulness more than the sinfulness of others. And friends, how might that change your marriage if you started, if both of you started operating that way? If you became more aware of your own sins than your mates. If you thought more about your own sinfulness than your spouse's. All right? About your own sinfulness 
than being sinned against. If you regarded the biggest problem in your marriage and in your conflict 99% of the time to be you and your sinfulness, you're starting to live out the gospel now because you're admitting, I'm a sinner. I have a problem. And so number one, living out the gospel in the midst of conflict, I must personally regard myself as the chief of all sinners. I'm the problem. Number two, I must realize that circumstances and spouses don't cause sin, they reveal sin. And I must realize that a sovereign God with great love and precision gave me precisely the spouse that I need for him to work to make me into the person he wants me to be. See, not having your love language met exposes your sin. Not having your needs met exposes your your heart. Not receiving what was promised even in vows that we might have said on this stage. And not getting that, it exposes your heart, your selfishness, your entitlement, your sense of like, me, 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 me. And so think of your mate as a bit of holy sandpaper. From a good God who wants to polish down those rough spots in you. And He gave you exactly the person that He wants to help do that. So, so avoid the temptation to resent your spouse when they start exposing your weaknesses and your sins. God's at work, He's refining. Don't be a baby. And don't respond like a king. How dare you? I'm a king and I, how dare you expose my sin? There's only one king. You're not him, but he's at work in you. Let him work. Number three of living out the gospel in the midst of conflict. I must realize that if this marriage is to change, I have to change. I'm the, I have to realize that, I'm, that, that the only person I can change is myself. I cannot change my spouse. I can change me. I am not responsible for their actions. I am responsible for my own. I cannot control her, but I must control me. I mean, I think of Luke 6, verse 42. How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your eye, in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then, you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Because what would happen in your marriage is if each of you spent as much time evaluating yourself as you do evaluating your spouse. The most powerful thing that you can do to improve your marriage is you be the best mate that you can. You be the spouse that God has called you to be. And oftentimes when you do this, your your spouse will respond likewise. But even if they don't, bottom line, if your marriage is to change, right? I have to change. You have to change. That's how we live out the gospel here. And then fourthly, I must realize that God's grace is sufficient for me regardless. John Newton, the famed pastor, William Wilberforce, Amazing Grace, you've seen that movie or or read 
All right, former slave trader who became a pastor, wrote Amazing Grace. When he was on his deathbed, he said, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and that Jesus is a great Savior. His grace not only provides pardon for our past sins, but also the power that we need to change. And he never runs out of grace. And so that means you never run out of power to change. And so let him change you. But you've got to make a conscious decision to let him change you and to seek to change the way that you live and love your spouse in a way that is pleasing to God, even in the midst of conflict. You're accountable for that as well. And so real fast, let's just fly through some do's and don'ts in the midst of conflict. Do pursue your mate for reconciliation, for resolution. Not trying to win, you're trying to resolve, all right? Do give them the opportunity to be heard and understood. Do keep control over your tongue and your actions. Men, you can slay your wife with your tongue. And ladies, Proverbs like it three times says to a, to a dude, it would be better for you to die in the desert than to live in the home with a wife that drip, 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 drip. Watch your mouths. Men and women, watch your mouths. Fight fairly, all right? Do fight fairly. Do own your sin. Do remember that only God is infallible. You're not. Do say, I love you at least once a day. Don't attack. Your spouse is not your enemy. Don't seek victory, right? Resolution is the goal. Don't blame shift. Don't punish. Don't be a doormat. Don't withdraw. Do put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so number one, communication has got to be a two-way street. Number two, conflict is a given. And this, Colossians 3, 12 through 14, this is how we conflict. This is how we fight. And so if we fight and if conflict is a given, that means number three, forgiveness is a must. So in your notes, number three, number one, communication is two-way street. Number two, conflict is a given. Number three, forgiveness is a must. I mean, Colossians 3, again, put on them as God's chosen, holy one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgiveness is a must in marriage. Someone once asked Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, like what the you know, key or what she thought the definition of marriage was. And she said that marriage is the union, a good godly marriage is the union of two forgivers. And she's exactly right. The phrase is, I love you. The phrase is, the phrase, I'm sorry. And the phrase, I forgive you should be the three most frequent things said in your house. 
Forgiveness is a must. Flip over to Matthew chapter 18, all right, page 823. In the Bibles that are around you, Matthew chapter 18, the first half of this uh, chapter 18 is all about church discipline. Verse 21 starts just talking about, and because they go together, just lavished forgiveness and grace. Matthew chapter 18, picking up in verse 21. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother, uh, let me say it again. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven in other locations. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So, sir, so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with I mean, this is very Bob Cratchit right here, right? He's going to go to prison for his debts. So the servant fell on his knees and pointing him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused. And went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And so, so look at this story here. You've got, a, you've got a guy who's racked up multiple offenses. Peter asks this question and Jesus replies, I mean, he's been doing this thing for like 15 years. All right. I hear that in a marriage uh, counseling time. He's been doing it for 15 years. And Jesus is like, hey, you forgive him 70 times 7. You forgive him limitlessly. But even beyond that, I want, I want you to see like big teaching point from here. Because you've got a guy who owes basically like a million dollars, we'll call it. And he's forgiven. And then he gets amnesia and forgets what he's been forgiven and then he finds a servant who owes him a much smaller sum and he refuses to forgive him. And the master says to him, you wicked servant. And so here's the point I want you to see. Unforgiveness is wicked. He wouldn't forgive the guy. And so the master says, you wicked servant. The sin of unforgiveness is wicked. You remember how much you've been forgiven and then you forgive. So, so you're not a dam, you're a channel. You, you pass it on. 
to forgive them, right, to, to not forgive someone is wrong. It's wicked. And unforgiveness here brought the anger of God. So also my Heavenly Father will do to you if you don't forgive your, your brother. And here's the clincher from your heart. And listen, feelings, they're the caboose in forgiveness. We'll get to that in just a second. But it still must truly be from your heart. And just being honest with you, people who don't forgive, they torture themselves. It is torturous to you when you are so consumed with your mate's sin and you just rehearse it in your mind over and over and over and don't forgive them, that tortures you. And the biblical solution is not to overcome evil with evil, but with goodness. You overcome evil with goodness, with forgiveness, with reconciliation. But what exactly is forgiveness, especially in the context of a relationship? All right, what, what is it and what is it not? Let me throw some things at you that it's not. Number one, forgiveness is not excusing. All right, what they did is not okay. If it was okay, then there'd be no need to forgive. And so forgiving doesn't mean that it's not a big deal. All right? It doesn't mean that it didn't hurt terribly or cause suffering or have horrible, horrible consequences. No, we forgive sin. We forgive evil. We don't excuse it. We forgive. I mean, it may have been really, really, really awful, but that's what forgiveness is for. You choose to forgive. You don't excuse it. Number two, forgiveness is not a feeling. This is what I was getting at just a second ago. You don't have to be emotionally ready to forgive somebody. In fact, almost always the emotional healing comes after the forgiveness. And so when are you ready to forgive? And the better question to ask is, when are you ready to trust and obey God that His way is best? Do you trust Jesus enough to obey Him and forgive the offender? That's the question. And forgiveness of, of the big and the bad sins, as we would describe it, that's one of the biggest ways to imitate Jesus. And the bigger the batter, the more we imitate Jesus. And feelings may not be there at first. They're the caboose. But I've always held on to what C.S. Lewis once said. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. So it is with forgiveness. Make a decision. Let it grow. All right. Number three, forgiveness is not dependent upon the attitude of the other person that sinned against you. Now, they can help you. All right. If you, you know, want your mate to forgive you, confess your sins. Be repentant. But still, forgiveness is not contingent upon someone's apology, someone making it right, someone living up to, you know, your standard or feeling bad enough and you feel like they've done enough penance and you've punished them enough. It's not on you to punish them. It's not your job. It's not on you to walk them through steps until they can earn their forgiveness. Does Jesus do that with you? And he forgives you freely. And we are to forgive freely. It's not conditional. 
All right? I stumbled upon this little nugget a couple years ago. It takes one person to repent. And it takes one person to forgive. It takes two people to reconcile. But you can forgive whether or not they ever repent. And apologize or change. And we're called to this. We're called to be continual forgivers. Quick to forgive because we realize how much we've been forgiven of. Number four, forgiveness is not equal to immediate trust. Forgiveness is not equal to immediate trust. Example, if you hurt my kids, I will forgive you. But you're not going to be around my kids anymore. Does that make sense? I love you. And I want good for you. And I release you know, ill will. I don't hold that towards you. But that doesn't mean that the relationship is just going to return to what it was before instantaneously. I mean, like adultery. Think about that for a minute. It's the offended person who's called to forgive all right, and, and continue in the marriage. But trust is not going to immediately flow. It takes time for trust to be restored. And how is trust restored? I'm not talking about how does it start. I'm talking about how is it restored after it's been broken. It's pretty simple. You trust people who are trustworthy. I'm not talking about you punish them until they earn back some right. I'm not talking about that. That's a lack of forgiveness if that's where you're at. But as people show that they're trustworthy, you give them your trust. All right? Forgiveness begins with a choice. It's not an emotion. It's not equal to immediate trust. Number five, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not forgetting. I hear people say things like, be like God and forgive and forget. And I just want to ask them, what bizarro universe do you live in? God is omniscient. By definition, He knows all things. That means He can't forget anything. So be theologically consistent. He can't forget things. So what does that mean when we see things like God forgets? It's that he chooses not to remember. And so you can't forget, but you can choose to not remember, to not call it to mind. That's what God does with our sins. He chooses, he can't forget, he's omniscient, but he chooses not to hold it against. He chooses not to remember that. He chooses not to call it to mind. And when we forgive, we are intentionally choosing not to remember that thing. Not to think about what they've done. And if you're dwelling on what someone's done to you, they've sinned against you in some way, and you're just rehearsing and basically offending yourself over and over and over in your mind, you're not forgiving that other person no matter what you say. Scripture says, don't think on the things that are below, but think on the things that are above. Those things that are good, holy, pure, noble, right. Think on those things. Like Replace your negative thoughts of, of your spouse or what they've done with positive thoughts. In fact, on that note, I'd encourage all of you to pick up this little book. I put it in your recommended resources. It's called Peacemaking for Families, a biblical guide to managing conflict in your home. Even just the first two chapters... Is, is worth the price of admission. Get this book. It'll be very, very helpful to you. And in it, the author, Ken Sand, he, he, he writes about four promises of forgiveness that I think are really, really helpful, really true. He says that forgiveness is a decision where you choose that 
I will not dwell on this incident in my mind. It's a decision where you choose, I will not bring this incident up again and use it against you. All right, that, that's forgiveness. Forgiveness is, I will not talk to others about this unless it's part of counseling or somehow necessary. It's not, let me tell you what Sarah did. Oh my gosh, you would not believe what Joe did this weekend. It's not that. I was trying to be Sarah. I'm not doing good with my impersonations today. My mom, my wife, botched both of them. Forgiveness is a decision where you choose to do your best to keep whatever's happened from harming and hindering the relationship. And so forgiveness is an event. Yes. Don't forget that. You make a decision. But it's also a process. All right? It starts with a volitional decision. And then over time, that emotional response will come. So it starts with a decision, but it moves from volitions to emotions. And it's a must in marriage. It's a must. Again, going back to the first week, even. Just as our wedding, like that day is a declaration of our love for our spouse. So our marriages are a declaration of God's love for sinners. That's what they picture. All right, we're painting a picture of Christ's love for the church by the way we treat our spouse. Because like Jesus, we're called to love sinners because you married one. You're displaying Christ's love for sinners in your marriage. And so we show God's love in that way by how we love our spouse and we love them well as we communicate freely, openly, and honestly. As we realize conflict is a given and we learn to fight fairly and seek resolution, not victory. And as we forgive just as we've been forgiven, freely, fully, finally. We're not the wicked servant who... He's been forgiven of all this, but then won't forgive this. And tries to choke our spouse. And we forgive. Because we've been forgiven. This is how the gospel changes our marriages. It doesn't just save our souls, it can save our marriage. And so breathe in God's grace and His goodness and His kindness towards you in the gospel. And then breathe it out on your spouse and your household the praise of His glorious grace and your own good and joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for, your, for this time, Lord, and I pray, Lord, that You would massage these truths into our heart and into our minds, God. Father, that we would not, like, that we would see conflict and we would learn to fight fairly, Lord, but we would learn to fight especially ourselves to make war on our sinful inclinations, on our selfishness, on our narcissism, on our me-ism, on our entitlement. Father, we would remember we are called to live for the other, to die to ourselves daily just as you died for us, to display your love for sinners in our marriage. We are called to love sinners like you said to. And like you did. To the point that you went to the cross for us. Help us to go to the cross, metaphorically, 
for our spouse again and again and again and again. In Jesus' name, amen.